Constructive Voices, the podcast for the construction people, with news, views and expert interviews. Hello, I'm Steve Randall. Welcome to Constructive Voices, the second episode of January, the second episode in our Biodiversity Month. And we have two guests for you today. It comes even more urgent to try and really address these negative trajectories that we're currently on and leave a better place for the next generation. People have gone through a whole education system and they're not making that connection between what's out there in the environment and their lives, you know. More about our two guests later on, but in just a moment, I'll be joined by Peter Finn, Pete the Builder. Constructive Voices media partner in Ireland and the United Kingdom is Construction Industry News. Since 2002, Construction Industry News has been focused on the very latest projects and developments within the UK and Ireland. So, Pete, we're back already. It seems like it was only a week ago we were talking. Ah, that's because it was. How are you doing? All good, Steve. Time waits for no man or no woman. Um, Yes, time is moving on and we're going to move with it. We're going to keep the conversation building. We're going to keep on uh, discussing the important subjects. And again, this month we're talking about biodiversity and, of course, the, the subject which, you know, we can't look past how our industry is going to be affected in a, in a financial way by the results of, of what we've seen and, and, and the change that we're going to have to make within our industry going forward. But it's not all bad news. There's also opportunity there. Yeah, definitely. And when you talk about finance, I mean, the the focus of the kind of big financial world, you know, those who are in venture capital and things like that, they know that they have to use that money to make a difference. You know, that's what people who have money want to do now. They want to use it for impact investing so that they can see that when they commit their capital to particular projects, not only does it produce, you know, in, in this sense of a construction uh, industry uh, thing, it's going to be a beautiful building, but they also want to know that what's being done there is going to make a difference to the environment, it's going to make a difference to society, and it's it's really going to be something that people are proud of and say, brilliant, thank you so much for, for doing this. Yeah, without a shadow of a doubt, look, you know, in life we all make decisions, we base them off risk, we base them off you know, what we're trying to achieve at the, the end of our uh, investment or the end of, of, of our work that we put in. And look, we can all make short-term investments with short-term returns, or we can make long-term investments and long-term returns. And look, we need to start thinking long-term now. We, you know, we have to stop our short-term thinking. We have to invest in our planet, basically. And how we get there is through education, and it's through uh you know, a change of mind and a change of perspective. Yeah, education is such an important one. And we've got a guest coming on who's going to explain a lot more about how we do that. But I did say, Pete, we've got two guests on this episode and Jackie DeBurka has been speaking to them. The first is talking about finance. I'm Margarita Skaku. I'm a venture capital investor at a climate tech fund called 2150 based in London and Copenhagen, investing globally. I'm originally an engineer, civil and environmental, worked in sustainable development and briefly in construction and and then spent the best part of a decade in in finance. uh, The last sort of four, five years of that, focusing specifically on sustainable finance and investing into technology companies. How do you feel that this interesting combination of your MEng civil engineering degree from the University of Edinburgh, uh, but also your SEMA certification as a business accountant, how do you feel those 
have positioned you to do the work that you're doing now? Yeah, it's it's an interesting question. Um, and I and I often say I've kind of gone full circle in a way because having sort of steered clear from the engineering world and, and uh, gone into corporate finance, I've now come back into a role where some of those technical skills and, and knowledge of what it means and what it takes to, to construct infrastructure and work in that environment are highly relevant because um, the core focus of, of 2150, as I'm sure we'll we'll get into more is is on urban sustainability. So built environment is at the heart of the companies we like to invest into and the technologies we focus on. So having that engineering background, engineering degree allows me to speak the same language as a lot of our founders um, and really understand some of the, the opportunities as well as the challenges. And I think there's also a certain mindset that um, people who are attracted into engineering tend to have and, and are able to to really cultivate, which is taking sort of complex problems or systems and breaking them down into component parts and and really problem solving, uh, which certainly comes in in handy when we're trying to deconstruct uh, what are often quite complicated technologies and businesses that we we seek to invest into. So that's the sort of engineering side. I mean, the the accounting qualification helps because at the end of the day, as, as an investor, our job is to um, understand the tech, understand the company, understand the market, but also be part of a journey with these companies of building businesses that can be profitable and can grow uh, their revenues significantly to in order that they can also then have a significant impact on, on our climate. And so it's, yeah, it's certainly come in handy to understand um P&L statements and, and income statements and, and cash flow statements and balance sheets, which is it's just part of the job when whenever you work in any sort of finance role. Perfect. So let's just talk just about your work in general. How do you work? What is an overview of exactly what you do? Because from what you've just explained there, Margarita, your educational background makes you excellently fluent in the work that you're doing from, from how you've described it. Yeah, so... Um, just to, to maybe take a step back and in case um, some of the audience isn't familiar with the venture capital world, we're an organization that seeks funds from other investors and those might be pension funds, they might be banks, they might be large corporates or in, in our case, often strategic investors from the uh, construction and real estate world that have identified the this, this certain challenges, um, but they're not necessarily very well positioned to um, understand or, or invest into innovation directly. And so we we take on those funds and seek to invest them directly into startup companies, so, so early stage businesses that have identified a problem and are developing a particular solution to address that problem. Um, and so the, the job, um, I, I sit on our investment team, it's, I think I'm in one of the most privileged jobs in, in the world. I, I get to meet uh, founders and entrepreneurs on a, on a daily basis, understand the market that they're operating in, what are the problems that they're seeking to solve and, and how are they approaching that. And so our job is to, uh, you know, first of all, understand certain themes such as biodiversity, which uh, is the topic of today's conversation in detail. What are, what are some of those challenges and opportunities? What are the different ways in which those challenges and opportunities can be addressed from a solution perspective? You know, often there's a, a heavy technology component embedded in that, whether that's um, 
machine learning, whether that's sort of new industrial technologies, and then really ultimately um, make sure we're we're backing the best teams and the best solutions that we think are well positioned to to grow and win in in large and growing markets and and make a return for our investors, as well as in 2150's case, because we are a sustainability-focused fund, ensure that we're having a real tangible and and quantifiable impact, positive impact on our society. Okay, and on a personal level, Margarita, you became a mother for the first time in 2022. How does that make you feel about the work that you're doing and about climate change and biodiversity loss? This is a really interesting question because over probably over the course of my career, I've, I've met and come across a lot of people who are devoting their careers to sustainability and, and climate change. And often the catalyst they all mention as, as the point at which they, they decided to really double down and focus on this was having children. Um, in my case, I'd say it's a little bit different. I grew up in a very environmentally conscious family. I I grew up on a on a Greek island, sort of surrounded by by nature and and the ocean, and um, being very passionate ab- about uh, protecting uh, and being a custodian of, of our environment. Um, and for the probably since my my school days, I've been working as part of environmental groups, and I studied civil and environmental engineering. And so there's never been a doubt as to whether or not this was important for me, and whether or not I wanted to. Um, at some point devote uh, my working life to this topic. I think what's maybe changed having had my daughter and, and I also have uh, three stepkids as well is that it becomes even more urgent to to try and really uh, address these negative trajectories that we're currently on and leave a better place uh, for the next generation because we are really talking about their life. It's not a two, three hundred, four hundred years from now thing. It's very immediate. So I, I think it hasn't fundamentally shifted whether or not this is something I care about, but it makes it even more imperative that I devote the, the rest of my working years to this. You definitely have uh, an unusual background compared to maybe the average VC, maybe in a city like London, etc., coming from one of the Greek islands. Which Greek island was it? <laughs> uh, yes, that, that's true. Um, it's an island called Naxos, which is in the Cyclades region in the south of Greece. Beautiful, beautiful. Now, biodiversity loss, Margarita, is a critical part of the climate crisis, but the methods for investing and protecting it are really far from established. What are your own feelings about this statement? I think largely this statement is true, However, there are inroads that are being made and, and I think are worth paying attention to. And, and certainly from our perspective, um, we've prioritized and invested already into, into a biodiversity measurement focused company, largely because of these uh, trends that exist. So I think on the policy side of things, the Dasgupta review in the UK, which was released, focused on the economics of biodiversity. And I think for the first time, really made very clear the value that ecosystem services of nature bring to uh, to the world and, and to, to our lives. You know, current extinction rates are around 100 to 1,000 times higher than the baseline rate, and they're increasing. And that has a, a very, very tangible impact on a number of different Things that we rely on, such as sort of food systems, um, water, um, water systems, and it's fundamental to to focus on. In the UK, again, the Natural Environment Research Council has a number of work streams and funded projects. A lot of this work currently sits in the academic sphere. 
but it's starting to feed into the the corporate and business world. And I think COP15 is is going to to really make sure that biodiversity gets to the top of the agenda over the next couple of years. How did you feel yourself about COP15? Have you felt any significant ripples in your VC world? Has it made any noticeable difference so far? Um, I'd say it has. So, I mean, first of all, you know, I feel positively about the outcome of COP15. For the first time, we've got a global biodiversity framework in place. You know, there's a very clear 2050 vision and, and some specific targets that um, the world and, and the participating countries would like to hit by 2030. The, the most noteworthy being that, you know, at least 30 percent of land and, and waters protected, which is which is vital. As someone who's been focusing on this topic for, for a while, you know, we were hopeful and we did, I like to think that we saw this coming. And so we we invested into a company called Nature Metrics last year that specifically focuses on biodiversity measurement, which is one of the biggest gaps, uh, I think, to, to doing more. We've certainly seen more and more, increasingly more VCs becoming interested in this topic and seeing it as a as a big opportunity to, to invest in. And, and as a result, there's also increasingly more companies now focusing on measuring and restoring and improving biodiversity, which is which is just fantastic to see. For those VCs who haven't taken those steps so far, Margarita, why should they think about backing biodiversity? I think about this question in under two lenses. The first is the economic lens. More than half of the world's 44 trillion GDP depends on nature um, and the damaging or, and further damaging and not restoring of biodiversity leads to significant economic challenges. Um, the second uh, lens through which I view this uh, question is that we just simply can't afford not to back biodiversity and support solutions that are um, helping us to restore it from a human perspective. Um, there's, there's inextricable links between human health and um, biodiversity, as well as climate change and, and climate mitigation adaptation. Um, things like flood mitigation rely on healthy natural ecosystems. So it's, to my mind, for, for VCs, whether they're focusing just on the financial potential and, and market opportunity or whether they're focusing on that and the impact, it's one of the most imperative themes uh, to, to focus on over the next five to ten years. Definitely. Now, why should VCs go a little bit further in the realm that we're in and consider investing in biodiversity is actually linked to the built environment? So the built environment is one of the leaders in, in damaging and degrading natural ecosystems and, and has been for a very long time. I think increasingly there's a recognition uh, and, and indeed regulation coming in to ensure that uh, not only the the damage is is restored, um, often this happens sort of elsewhere. So, for, particularly on large trans transportation projects where um, roads and other infrastructure is, is going through, for example, existing forests, there's there's an imperative to actually restore and essentially replace that damaged ecosystem elsewhere, which which I think is great. Um, there's also regulations such as biodiversity net gain. So not only are you having as a as a developer uh, in the built environment space, not only are you having to sort of replace what you're damaging, you're you're actually having to demonstrate that you're improving the biodiversity by at least ten percent. 
So I think it's one of the markets or one of the um, industries that has the greatest impact and where there's a lot of regulation coming in to ensure that that impact is is minimized and and there's a sort of positive action that's um, coming as a as an immediate response to the to the negative impact. Perfect. Now building under business as usual is clearly unsustainable. The opportunity is clear and urgent that we must pursue new materials, processes and tools that ensure the 233 billion square metres we will build by 2030 make our cities and our planet one that will be able to continue to inhabit. Now, this is a statement, obviously, on 2150 website. 2030 is right now only under seven years away. Is this achievable, do you think? And if so, how? Thank you for for referencing our unsustainable newsletter series. I don't know if that was intentional or not, but um, for anyone listening to the podcast, um, we we do thematic deep dives within our fund that helped inform our thesis, and we we tend to publish these uh, as part of a, a newsletter series. So, so do feel free to read more about that. I think inaction while demanding perfection guarantees poor results. We can reach for good ahead of twenty thirty. Um, there's a number of reports that have been released in the last. So six months that demonstrate the 1.5 degree world is increasingly a hard to achieve uh, dream, let's say, but but we're we're optimists. Part of the reason the built environment is at the heart of what we invest in at 2150 is, first of all, that relative to its emissions, it's one of the most underfunded segments within climate tech. Um, and then secondly, specifically in relation to your point of, of what can we do uh, in the in the near term, it's traditionally been a slow moving industry. Yet there are solutions that exist today that can be deployed and have a real impact on reducing emissions and improving biodiversity. So I've already referenced Nature Metrics, which is the biodiversity measurement uh, and restoration company we've invested into. Other examples include Ampt, which. Uh, have developed electric generators for construction sites. So today, the vast majority of construction sites around the world are powered through diesel and a very damaging kind of diesel, which leads to air pollution and other issues for for urban environments. That's something that can easily be addressed and have a has, have a significant impact. I think what's important is is speed where those solutions exist. So. Um, the large larger companies actually adopting these solutions and then collaboration across different industries and fields, mitigating where we can, but also accepting that we are at a point that adaptation is is something we need to think about and, and really start to consider, particularly for certain parts of the world that will be more acutely affected by climate change. That's an excellent example, Marguerite, of something that, as you said, could make significant impacts and positive changes today if adaptation and collaboration were in place um, quickly enough, obviously. How do you envisage, Marguerite, being able to get investment at the full scale that is urgently needed? I think today that the pace of progress required to hit the climate change targets is is exponential and there is significant progress being made um you know the 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 vc and p investment industry attracted 58 billion last year specifically focusing on climate tech however the scale of the challenge that's presented is far greater than what one particular sub segment can address on its own 
So we, we, we feel collaboration is key. And that includes collaboration between the financial world and, and the, the policy world, uh, as well as collaboration between different financial players. So that the scale of the challenge and transformation and just the capital required, which is trillions per year, every year, can't just be satisfied by, by venture capital. We need to work with, with banks. We need to work with infrastructure providers. We need to work with debt providers. I think it's collaboration is key and, and, and fast action. The government, governments across the world also have a role to play, I think, in ensuring that the financial incentives and the carrots and the sticks are in place to really drive this transition. Certainly. And Roberta Boscolo, who will be sitting with you at the round table, who was our first podcast episode in this series, she did mention about the governments and she mentioned how being at the the COPs uh, was very obvious, in her opinion, and many other people's, I think, that really it's people at lower levels who are seeing exactly what you've talked about, like that urgent need for collaboration and for governments and other authorities to stand up a little bit quicker than they are doing. Yeah, and I think and I think the private sector has played and is playing a huge role in moving quickly because it, in many ways, uh, we're more adept to doing that than than governments are, and you know governments can can get locked in these long negotiations as well. However, particularly for industries like construction. And, and sort of built environment at large, I think there is a really important role to play because a lot of the barriers to adopting solutions that are more climate friendly come from things like building codes, which while particularly as an engineer, I appreciate can't be changed overnight. There are changes that can be made that would lead to, to far faster and greater innovation from a decarbonisation perspective. And a lot of that, uh, the, the private sector can only take things to a point, uh, there's a point beyond which um, the, the policy environment also needs to to help. That's absolutely true. And, and, and again, you mentioned biodiversity net gain earlier in our chat. Um, the law that's coming in in the UK is is for ten percent, which you know, as I said to Roberta, is that enough? But it's a good start, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think other other governments across the world are are implementing similar changes. I think it's it's a good start on it. It's also a signaling effect. It signals to companies and and corporations and investors that this is now a topic that is is on government's radar and is going to become increasingly more scrutinised. Uh, which is sort of very similar to what happened with with carbon a number of years ago. So in that sense, I think it's a very very welcome um, welcome change. Certainly. Now, going back to investment, um, how can we, you know, not only we have the challenge of getting enough investment and quickly, but how can we also avoid, Margarita, that that money doesn't get piled into schemes that really aren't doing any good or they appear on the surface to be doing good, but in fact, it might even be, you know, doing inadvertent harm, like the likes of, you know, tree planting that can actually damage plants that are on valuable habitats as one of the many examples. Yeah, this this is a really important question, and I think the one thing that we always talk about internally, but but as uh, externally as well, specifically in relation to biodiversity, is that it's it's extremely complex, and it's not as binary as something like carbon emissions, um, and it is location specific. Different ecosystems uh, require different 
levels of restoration, different actions to be taken. Um, so I, I think it's a really, really important question, really vital to to get this right. I think from a from a venture capitalist perspective, our role is to seek out and support founders and innovators around the world that we believe um, are, are true experts in the field are developing the best solutions in in the best possible way. I think the more we can find and back the right founders, the less space there is for inaction or greenwashing um, that stands in the way of of progress. I think the other thing I would would add is that very early on in 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 our fund's development, our partners recognised the need to have someone on the team full time who is a real expert in sustainability and um my colleague peter here she's head of sustainability and he he holds us accountable it's, it's part of our job as well to ensure that we know we know enough about what we're investing in to ensure that we don't cause inadvertent harm but but he also holds us to account and you know as part of being an article 9 fund we we have certain um things we need to be compliant with and and a lot of that is focusing on exactly this topic that ensuring that you're actually backing solutions that can have and deliver real impact in in the right way for each particular circumstance so integrating biodiversity into investment strategies it requires as you've already elaborated on you know firstly defining what it is what is the concept that it's going to do you know the kind of good that you're there that you're hoping to be involved in um, but that also is tied into understanding the extent of biodiversity loss, which right now there isn't any kind of a central measurement tool that can be um, referenced, if you like. That perfectly brings in the project that you already mentioned earlier, Nature Metrics. Would you like to tell us about that? Yes, absolutely. So, so again, I think it, it goes back to, to what I was saying around biodiversity being complex and, and not being this sort of single um, thing you can measure in the same way easily and repeatedly and this measurement gap is exactly what we identified and what we're seeking to address through our investment into nature metrics so so nature metrics is a company um, focusing on measuring and restoring biodiversity and they achieve that through environmental dna so the services is a relatively straightforward one um, they offer eDNA sampling of water and soil, and those samples are then analysed to provide uh, a breakdown of all the species in a particular environment. And this gives a near complete picture of biodiversity composition in any given ecosystem. So it enables baselining at the start, going back to the built environment example, you know, before a project starts uh, or, or sort of after a project has been developed, you Nature Metrics allows a very accurate and efficient baselining of what does that ecosystem look like. And from there, they offer um, a service that can enable restoration over time and measurement over time to track progress. So having a clear measurement solution like eDNA that can be applied on that global scale, I think is a crucial step in, in addressing these biodiversity concerns and building solutions because it's it's complex. And so you need um, you need a very comprehensive way of, of establishing that baseline as a way of then improving on that. So is that robust enough at the moment or 
it's envisaged to be robust enough to be to become a global reference? I mean, the solution itself is is robust in terms of the the accuracy it provides, and they actually at COP fifteen, Nature Metrics just launched a, a world first um, nature measurement digital um, product, which is powered by DNA. I think. They're also working very closely with with a number of NGOs, charities, and international organisations on what does that baseline look like. What what does good mean for any given ecosystem? There is a lot of work that's happening already on this topic, and um, one of the reasons why we we got extremely excited about Nature Metrics and back them is is because the founder Kat Bruce is is a world expert on this topic. She's been part of discussions around biodiversity measurement and monitoring, specifically um, environmental DNA, for for a number of years. So there is progress being made, and we we definitely see Nature Metrics as the current leading solution out there that is well positioned to to um, measure in the natural environment. Sounds, it sounds really, really, really interesting. Um, 2150's investment thesis focuses on major unsolved problems across what it calls the urban stack, which basically makes up every element of the built environment from the way our cities are designed, constructed and powered to the way people live, work and are actually cared for. Can you elaborate on this, please, Margarita? Yeah, absolutely. So, so we've used cities and urban technologies through the lens of the urban stack, as you've mentioned, which um, represents four interconnected, but also interdependent layers that we feel collectively make up an urban environment. Um, so our hope is that by investing across all these four layers, 2150 will be able to promote that systemic change that is so much needed in cities. And the reason we focus on cities is is twofold. Firstly, 80% of global GDP comes from cities, as do 70% of global emissions. And there's a there's a huge shift um, and, and increasing urbanization happening uh, across the world, particularly in the developing world. The second aspect is that climate change is a systems issue and it requires systems level approach to mitigate and adapt. And, and cities are, are the perfect system where a lot of these solutions can and should be applied. So just to elaborate on the four layers of the urban stack um, and for, for any entrepreneurs that are listening to this um, this podcast, the four areas we invest in are, are into the experience layer. So this is really about allowing citizens to work, live and stay healthy and secure within an urban environment. Second layer is operating. So solutions that optimize urban assets from sensor equipped cities, buildings, facility management to, to logistics and supply chains. Um, third is build. So, of course, how we build, um, including the, the planning and construction phases, is key. We look at things like new materials uh, across this, as well as efficiency platforms and, and tools. And um, and the fourth is, is enabling. So enabling infrastructure technologies and platforms that allow urban areas to scale sustainably and, and resiliently. Enabling technologies are often the ones that allow us to measure things that are important, such as biodiversity, which is just crucial to urban resilience. Obviously, in your field, you must be looking at the opportunities that there are right now. What are the most important one or two that you feel should be grabbed Oof, uh, so so many to talk about. Um, I mean, I think you know we're continuing to focus on biodiversity, and and that is definitely a space we're we're tracking closely. And and in a way linked to that is is the bioeconomy more broadly. 
uh, and I'm not the expert on on this. Uh, one of my colleagues who who has a PhD in biology is is very much the expert. But what's a fascinating change that we've seen is that a lot of the new materials that are being developed are actually bio based. So taking bacteria and and growing them in a controlled environment that enables far more circular, resilient, and environmental materials. Um, and an example. Uh, related to the built environment and a company that we've invested in is Biomason, which is actually um, developing concrete um, using bacteria. It's absolutely fascinating. And I w- would encourage everyone to to look into that that company. Um, I think beyond biodiversity and, and, and the bioeconomy, I'm personally very interested in, in new materials and, and circularity more broadly. So there's a company which we haven't invested into, but um, I think are fascinating. And it's a good example of, of that intersection between new materials and circularity. It's a company called Austria based in France, and they're taking shell waste, which France has a lot of um, from seafood primarily, and turning it into a really uh, highly durable building material, primarily at the moment used in flooring and, and furniture. The reason I like this example is because actually the, the waste from shells is a big, big problem because they, they build residue in in the water and, and that that does actually damage biodiversity. So a lot of the shellfish processing companies actually need to pay to have this waste removed and then processed, which is a really damaging process in itself. And, and a company is sort of using that as a raw material to produce a, a material that has a, a zero um, carbon footprint. So there's a lot more opportunities that I could go into, but I think um, those two areas are the ones that I'm most excited about and most fascinated about right now. That material sounds absolutely fascinating. And it's beautiful. Um, it's absolutely beautiful uh, as well. It, you know, it's sort of as beautiful, if not more, than, than a really um, nice marble, which, which is an additional benefit. That was going to be my, my next question, Margarita, was, you know, how it, it sounds like it could be beautiful. And then on top of that, it's coming from the sea, which we're so connected to so many of us. Absolutely. Fascinating. Now, let's talk about, you did touch on it briefly earlier on, how human health and the built environment itself and biodiversity are in, inextricably li- linked. Now, you have your background from Barclays and all of your own knowledge and experiences that you've accumulated. How do you feel venture capital can step in and embrace this concept? A a challenge for us as venture capital investors is that while we ultimately need to understand those those different impacts on that systems approach, we also need to identify specific solutions tackling specific problems within that that can work in collaboration but also individually independently have a positive impact. And that's where measurement felt like such a key important step because if you can't measure it you can't manage it and that's the start to all of the co-benefits uh that that biodiversity brings health being being one of them um i think where i see our role as venture capitalists is that um you know ultimately our role is to take risk uh around technologies and and solutions that can have an impact, uh, but measured risks through deep understanding of these key themes, deep understanding of the range of different companies and technologies, um, and and ultimately applying the, the sort of skills and, and uh, analytical rigor to identifying the best companies and post-investment working with those companies to, to unlock greater collaboration and 
ensure that companies can grow um, sustainably from from a financial and non financial perspective. But I will I will emphasize again the importance of collaboration. And I think if if I've learned one thing from my background is that um, you know no no one can achieve anything in in a silo, particularly when it comes to to something like climate change and and biodiversity. Uh, restoration. We we really need to be very very collaborative in our approach. Yes, I would agree one hundred percent. One of the things that comes across from from this last answer, Margarita, is you know there's obviously a lot of analysis that goes in and you know risk analysis and measurement and so on. But from what you're saying, because of the issue being so colossal, I think there's an element of being a visionary as well. Is there not? Absolutely, absolutely, and I think. Part part of what I think of as our role in taking risk is that our, our role is to also be visionary and, and try to be one or two steps ahead of what is currently status quo and, and then be part of uh, the voice really driving that change and, and pushing harder for for faster change because because we do need to move faster, I think. Whether whether we're talking about biodiversity or, or climate change or carbon emissions, we really need to do more faster. Yes, I think there's there's probably hardly anybody who has embraced the issue who would disagree with that last comment. I guess the optimistic person in me, and perhaps the same as yourself, would maybe like to see that with everything moving fast enough and with enough collaboration, that it might even be possible to create a better world for people eventually. I mean that's certainly that's certainly the hope, and I, and I think nature is absolutely part of any better world, and and greater respect for nature and living, you know, alongside uh, other organisms on this planet is is a vital part of that. What worries me is that there's a number of tipping points, whether it's in relation to to climate change um, or biodiversity loss. There's a number of tipping points that once you hit that point, it's it's a lot harder to to go back and and in many cases uh with biodiversity due to species extinct you 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 can't but i yeah definitely want to end on a on a more optimistic um note and you know i think i think the thing i'd really emphasize is that again is that there are solutions out there many of which you know we and, and other investors focusing on similar topics have invested in so you know, would would urge those in in positions of authority and and responsibility in in large corporations in the built environment and more broadly to to look towards these solutions and also be visionary and pioneers in adopting some of them. Definitely, that is obviously key to the success, not only of what we need as a world and a planet, but also to these solutions that are you know, not being publicized sufficiently for some of the big players and the medium players to adopt them. So what are your hopes when it comes to influencing the built environment sector through our chat today on this podcast and then the roundtable that you're going to be part of at the end of January? What are your hopes out of this? Two things, probably. I think the first one for those people within the built environment sector who are interested, but perhaps not not incredibly um, well informed is, is to to really inform them about some of these problems but also the opportunities that exist we are on this transition whether people like it or not it is happening the commitments that have been made uh, through the, the the different cops both the, the 
the climate COP and the biodiversity COP mean that, you know, the world is going to, to change and shift in a positive direction. And so really urging people to to jump on the bandwagon if they're not already on it and um, really think about the role that they play. I think specifically the built environment is responsible for 40% of carbon emissions and, and significant loss of biodiversity in natural habitats, as we've talked about. So thinking about that responsibility. And, and then the second one, which is very linked, is is doing something about it. And that goes back to the point I was making around solutions that are out there and exist. And, you know, be be ambitious. Um, biodiversity net gain is, is a 10% improvement, but but why not push push more? Why not be more ambitious? And there are companies out there that are doing that. And I'd, I'd love to see more people within the built environment sector um, pushing those those boundaries. That's Margarita Skarku speaking to Constructive Voices' Jackie DeBurka about finance and how that plays into the whole biodiversity piece that we're talking about in this month's Constructive Voices. On the 31st of January, we have a special event. We'll talk more about that and how you can be part of our roundtable panel event very shortly. But first, a second of our two guests. And I said we were talking about finance, but also education in this week's episode. My name's Fintan Damer. I'm an ecologist. Uh, have been for the last four to five years working for a consultancy. They're a kind of a multidisciplinary organisation, really. Mount McDonald. They're involved in all sorts, sorts of infrastructural works. It could be road projects. It could be um, electrical projects, infrastructure projects, water as well. I work as an ecologist for them, so I'm kind of more or less the first person on site where there might be developments uh, taking place or potentially a, a development taking place because they don't always end up being uh, full projects because uh, we might go in and find something sensitive in that environment and say, no, this is not a good site. You're going to have to find somewhere else, you know. So I, I'm, I'm the first on the ground, essentially, you know. It's a greenfield sites, generally speaking, you know. What? do you do when you arrive on site Vinton? First of all you, you might you might actually do a desk study even before you go out anyway on site because you might find something very important to know before you even go on site so for instance if, if the site happens to be a designated site or within a designated site you know uh, from a European perspective you know the, the site's designated for protection you've got um, special protection areas and um, special areas of conservation so uh, if you're at in one of them sites or near one of them sites, that, that's going to flag up problems itself because it's, it's quite difficult to get planning permission when you're in one of them or near one of them. So that's kind of a death study as you might do before you even go out. And when you're on it, actually out on site, what you're doing is looking at the habitats that are in, in that site. Some of them might, might be nothing extraordinary about them all. Others could have a huge amount of uh, biodiversity in them, could have all sorts of habitats in them. And uh, you're looking at the sensitive habitats that are in, in that analysis, uh, analyzing the kind of... Um, the biota that would be in that. So you're looking at birds, you're looking at um, botanical studies, uh, you're looking at bats, mammals. Would you have guidelines specifically from the company itself or would you be adhering to Irish government guidelines? How exactly does that work when you analyse the site and you've come, you've come back yeah. from that site analysis? Yeah, well, there's a kind of a standard used across the board where you'd probably find any of the consultancies use the same thing. And from an Irish perspective, it's uh, you use what they call the fossil class, which is basically looking at all your habitats that exist in Ireland. Now, different countries have different ways of going about, but more or less, they're all the same. We just happened to use one that was developed in Ireland for an Irish from an Irish context. So 
it works for us. So you're looking at the habitats and they're all classified. Every habitat in Ireland is classified into a, into a certain type. And that's what you're trying to get first out of your analysis, your field analysis, deciding what kind of habitats are in it. And then from that, you'll decide, okay, well, which ones are, are, are more critical in terms of, um, you know, what we need to protect. Okay. And then the next question would be, say, for example, you decide this site is acceptable if we were to do X, Y, and Z for biodiversity net gain, for example? Yeah, unfortunately, biodiversity net gain hasn't really taken off here in Ireland yet. It's it's not certainly not in our, uh, it's not written in our statute books yet. In the UK, they have, uh, hasn't come here yet. There's a lot of talk about it. And I'd say it probably will come in. I'd be very surprised it doesn't come in within the next few years. Probably via uh, an EU director has something like, along those lines, I'd say, because we don't tend to jump first in, in Ireland. Uh, we tend to wait till the EU tells us to do things and then we do them, uh, which is a bit unfortunate. We're always on the back foot in that regard. It'd be great to see us kind of taking the lead, really. There is some companies even, so you know, companies that would, that would be approaching us, uh, they're mentioning it even, even though it's not uh, in law yet. So they maybe realize themselves that it's coming down the line and companies in general want to be seen in a good light anyway. So uh, sometimes even current projects, there is some of them that might put a little bit of effort into, um, you know, restoring a site that might be adjacent to where where they're working, you know what I mean, just for the purpose of looking good if you like you know so would you see when you say obviously there's companies that want to be seen to be doing something good yeah are they just kind of scraping the surface finton or do some go a wee bit deeper because it's not in law yet i suppose it is kind of the scraping the surface really but nevertheless i have seen some little projects around the place where they've gone above the call of duty if you like you know you'll often see a lot of development sites and the great planting trees or hedgerows and that kind of thing but that, they just kind of leave it at that like or they have open green spaces of grass but it's monoculture do you know what i mean it's not really of, of huge value to uh to biodiversity so i have seen some little projects where they're developing kind of wetlands and stuff where they haven't covered in streams and stuff into kind of ducting and that they're leaving the streams open and developing a little bit of habitat around them so that that's a plus that's that's something that's that's relatively new that uh, i certainly haven't noticed uh, going back years you know it's only something i've seen happening in the last two to three years maybe you know that is positive where where are those sites um i saw one recently in lusk in north county dublin fifes were developing uh, warehouses there and uh they obviously they obviously purchased more land than they needed there was an existing stream on the site so they they left that open and they've created some additional kind of wetlands so they've enhanced the habitat really uh it, it would have been just a stream before and probably highly modified, I'd say, over a year because it was former agricultural land. So the, the existing stream probably wasn't in a, in, a, in a great state anyway. So they, they have developed kind of little wetlands uh, adjoining onto that stream. Uh, and so they've actually increased the biodiversity, really. And it's, 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 I've looked at it recently, actually. It's done maybe about, maybe about 18 months now. And it's, it's, it, even already, it's, it's starting to look like a bit more like a, a natural habitat, if you like, you know. So, you know, if, if more companies, started doing stuff like that we would be in a, a better way you know definitely so obviously we've had margarita speaking from a venture capital and financial perspective do you feel the finance is the the biggest challenge or or is education the biggest challenge what, what are your own feelings as as an expert in your field 
could probably say it's much for much, but education is 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 a, is a big question because uh, you know you can start right from primary school education, secondary school education, right at the third level. There's not a huge amount of effort put into understanding biodiversity. I mean, if you ask your average, even teenager, what is biodiversity, they'll probably struggle to tell you what it is. You know. And that's something that's lacking generally in our education system. And I think it's, you know, we should really be putting biodiversity on the same level as any other subjects that are routinely taught, like languages, you know what I mean, or maths or anything like that. That's how important it is to me because uh, having biodiversity in your living landscape, it's not just something nice to look at. It's critical to human existence. So I think it should be a compulsory subject. It's, it's missing. And I think it's it's possibly even more missing now than it was when I was that age. You know, you went out, you were brought out in the fields and you, you were showing trees and you were showing the different species of trees. Now that's all done from a classroom. I have three young sons and they're all in primary school and they've never been brought on a field trip. I don't think they know of the landscape. They've either learned from me or they've learned from a whiteboard in a classroom, which is terrible, like, you know, because it's a disconnect from the environment, you know, and that, that, that goes the whole way up. That goes into secondary school as well. That even goes into third level colleges. That even goes into modules in, in courses, in uh, land-based courses, even in ecology courses. You'll often find out I, I, my last stint in college, uh, I spent two years in it, and they had uh, two field trips in two years terrible really do you know what i mean it, particularly a course like that it's on ecology it's on the environment and all they managed to do was two field trips you know it's absolutely crazy isn't yeah, it so you think yeah. about people who are training in hospitality for yeah. example of course they're put into the hotels and the bars exactly. yeah yeah you yeah. don't just let them loose in a bar or a hotel once absolutely. every two you know once every yeah. year or whatever yeah so that's yeah. pretty crazy yeah. so listen in the 30 years or so finton that you we're working in horticulture and, of, of course, you know, now directly in ecology. Yeah. What biodiversity loss have you personally observed during that time? Significant, I'd say, but it's a, it's a mind change that I've seen. And, you know, we, we talk about biodiversity and the environment probably more than we ever have done, certainly uh, in the last 20 years anyway. Everyone knows the words. They just don't seem to connect about what that means to them personally. You know, I, I mean, I worked as a landscaper primarily working on in private gardens, private projects, you know what I mean? And I certainly noticed in the last 10 to 15 years, the amount of people who want simplicity in their gardens, they don't want effort. They don't want to actually do anything, really. All they want to do is look at it and use it as a, and I put this in inverted commas, outdoor room. They want their gardens to look like their kitchens or their living rooms, you know? Um, they want paving wall to wall. They don't want plants or very few plants. They want the artificial grass, all these type of things. And that's all a loss of biodiversity, you know. That's shocking really these days because we see these things on the news every day. They're talking about biodiversity loss. They're talking about environmental damage and climate change and all this. And then people switch off the news and they say, okay, I think I'll get the garden done next week. Let's get paving. Let's get artificial grass. That to me is down to education People have gone through a whole education system and they're not making that connection between what's out there in the environment and their lives, you know. I think that is firstly, sadly, very true. And secondly, is it perhaps a 
an ingredient of today's kind of like fast paced society, you know, the easier the things are to access, the better that they look in that kind of a plastic sense rather than in a really authentic sense. Yeah, uh, certainly. Yeah, there's definitely that. But there's also um, certainly in the landscaping business, landscapers, in my opinion, they tend to do what they're asked to do. You not often see a landscaper turn around and say, no, actually, I'm not going to do that for you because that's just not sustainable for the environment and that's that's a downfall as well do you know what i mean and that that comes from back again to education horticultural colleges agricultural colleges they don't have biodiversity modules they don't have standalone biodiversity modules in any of their courses certainly not in ireland anyway and so you know when somebody comes along and asks them to do a certain project a certain type of thing in a, in a, in, a, in a landscape situation they're not thinking about the damage they're just thinking about the end product am i going to have a happy customer you know uh, thinking about it like that, that's kind of one of the things that's, in a way, turned me against the landscape business. And that's why one of the, certainly one of the reasons why I made the change and became an ecologist. I got sick of being asked to do projects that I just didn't agree with. It's not even the case of budget, because certainly from, from a, a landscaping point of view, probably the most expensive part of landscaping a, a site is the hard landscaping. <laughs> Do you know, it's not the soft landscaping, the good stuff, you know, the good stuff is going to help our biodiversity. It's a hard landscaping. They're spending money. They're probably spending more money than they ever have, but they're spending it on hard surfaces, you know. Now, going to COP15, which obviously happened towards the end of 2022, yeah. what were your own personal thoughts about the outcomes? Good to middling, I'd say. One of the biggest downsides was what it didn't get the media attention at all, like, you know, compared to COP27, you know. It's just not perceived as important as climate even though they're completely related, you can't have one without the other. You know, if, you, if your biodiversity isn't right, well, you can change all you like about climate change as regards, you know, not burning fossil fuels or reducing our, our uh, livestock. If you can't get your biodiversity right, those things won't matter. And nobody seems to have copped onto that yet, you know. There was some very positive things about it, what they, they, they kind of did decide on. Certainly from an Irish perspective, we've signed up to creating 30 by 30, which is 30% of our marine environment uh, protected by 2030 which is great uh, and we've already designated an extra six percent we had two percent kind of covered now that's risen to eight percent and you know it's going in the right direction what we haven't signed up to unfortunately is the terrestrial landscape and that's going to be the really big issue because in ireland 66 percent of our land is agricultural land in private ownership and it's very, very difficult to change that when you have big lobby groups. Marine environment is much easier. And even the, the new marine sites that we have designated now, they're all in uh, deep sea. They're all way out. They're nowhere near the coast. They're not really a big issue to anybody, even even to fishing industry, really. Um, so as they start designating more sites in the marine environment that are close to the coast, you'll probably find to be a lot more resistance. And certainly when it comes to terrestrial designations, that's going to be really an, an uphill battle. Now, we spoke to Roberta Boscolo of WMO, and she shared with us statistics that you're you're quite possibly aware of yourself anyhow, but that the last eight years have been the hottest on record. How do you feel about that, Fintan? Uh, frustrated, worried, I suppose, you know. Uh, there's all sorts of big figures like that, and that's probably one of the big ones. Um, the other one, you you sometimes hear as well that we've lost 70% of our biodiversity in the last 30, 40 years, which is an incredible number. Like, you know, it's hard to get your head around those kind of numbers. Like, and hot as years, every year has got hotter for the last eight years. I mean, it's only going one direction. Uh, uh, 
I know we don't have t- too many climate deniers anymore, but there is still something that, that that don't make the connection between what humans are doing and that climate change. They think it's happening naturally, you know. But nat- natural changes in the environment or climate don't happen that quick. <laughs> so you have to accept that it's uh, human-induced, you know. It does cause anxiety, you know. I mean, you, you do hear a little bit now uh, in, the, in the media and that about climate anxiety. Exactly with all these protests you see with younger folk, that comes from climate anxiety, you know, and biodiversity anxiety. I mean, I can probably say I do suffer from that myself, you know, because uh, I'm 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 so close to it that I, every tiny little change I see in the environment it becomes really obvious to me. Most people pass it by and they don't see it. Here in Spain, we can see because I observe also not maybe with your same background, but the almond blossom yeah. gets earlier and earlier every single year. Yeah, for the last good few years. Yeah. It strikes you because it's so pretty, which is exactly why you really notice it. But yeah. hang on, last year was this time. This yeah. year is earlier again, you know? Yeah, yeah. And that's the same in everything. You you, you, okay, you notice it there now with flowering times, uh, but that's across the board for everything. Uh, any migratory species of birds, they arrive back earlier in the spring. Some of them aren't even migrating anymore. <laughs> you know, lots of species. I mean, we're seeing swallows in Ireland now in the winter. These birds traditionally spend their winters in Africa, as far down to South Africa, you know. And vice versa, we're also getting losses of wintering bird species in Ireland. Birds that would have traditionally come here for the winter to get away from the harsher weather in, in Northern Europe. They're doing what they call short stops. So they get so far, they say, okay, the weather's okay here, we'll stay here, we won't bother going as far as Ireland anymore. Um, so we're losing our biodiversity because of climate change as well, you know. It's not just a human problem. It's a nature problem as well, you know, and not necessarily a positive thing. I mean, okay, we have got some new species in Ireland as well as a result of climate change, but I think we're losing far more than we're gaining. Big issues, you know. Yes, it's very. It's obviously very, very vast, and we're doing our best at Constructive Voices to cover some of the major issues during this month, which is biodiversity in the built environment. And, of course, we're speaking to, you know, a selection of experts each with their own angles and we're going to do our very best to cover as much ground as we can Fintan but it's huge of course if you were just to focus on one challenge or one potential solution what would that be? Absolutely it has to be education Um, if we can't educate the people then it's really we're, we're fighting an uphill battle all the time you know we've got to basically make it so that uh, from the very first words that come out of your mouth when you're three or four years of age, that one of those first words that you learn is biodiversity or is climate change and understanding what they are. And if you understand what they are from that age and you grow up with it, then it's not an anxiety anymore. It's not a thing to worry about anymore. I've, I've spoken to kids uh, recently, they've been 12, 13 years of age. They understand these things and, and they kind of worry about it, but it's like, yeah, well, I won't worry about that. I'll, I'll worry about that when I'm an adult. I said, well, it's too late when you're an adult. You've already missed 10, 15 years, you know what I mean? These kids are the future. And our politicians don't understand anything. They have to ask advisors, what's this thing, biodiversity? What, what's that mean? What, what, why are we worried about that, you know? We need to go well beyond that. We, we need everybody. I mean, everybody across across the globe and across every industry to understand what these things are right right from, from childhood up, you know. So for one last word to the audience, Fintan, if you were in a position to educate other people in the built environment, yeah. how would you like to affect the listeners? How would you like to make them wake up a little bit more and engage and understand 
biodiversity more fully. Get outside. You know, we spend too much time inside. Technology has ruined us in a way. It's too easy for us to just sit inside, sit and uh, look at our screens, look at our phones. We, you, could, you could actually, it's possible to live inside now for your entire life and never have to go outside. That's terrible, you know. Do you know, we saw a little bit of it in COVID. People did start to reconnect because they couldn't go anywhere. They couldn't go to work. So they started exploring their local environments because they could walk for a few kilometers. And they saw things that they never saw before. People started noticing, noticing wildlife and they said, oh, it's great. All the wildlife's coming back because of COVID. But it's not. It was always there. There's nobody noticed it, you know. This is Constructive Voices. So there you go, Pete. Another great guest and talking about education as we were earlier, an important part of this whole move that we have towards being more aware of biodiversity and how important it is for climate change, for the environment, for everything. And as Finton said, human existence itself. Now, um, as well as talking about particular topics this year, we're going to be talking about community. That's going to be a big thing for us this year. Community. That's going to be a big thing for us this year. And I know, Pete, it's something you're very, very excited about and very much a driver of bringing everybody together on this journey, particularly with some of these big issues that we're dealing with in the construction industry and the wider world. Yeah, look, we've we've been listening to our listeners and we've been uh, we've been you know, taking on board what what we know we've done well here in Constructive Voices, and um, we, we are we're, we're looking to bring a community together. We're looking to make sure that we have a platform that people can come to, and they can they can ask questions, they can uh, showcase what they do, they can showcase what they know. Look, I, my perspective on this whole thing, and this is the construction industry in general, and and I suppose how we live our lives is, you know, nobody is an expert at everything. And we have uh, the opportunity to to create a platform here and a community here where we can get experts to come on and give us their perspectives and, you know, inform us on, on the research that they have done and give us the, the opportunity to listen to what they've got to say and, and to see what they do. And again, be, in, be informed, be educated and contribute then ourselves as well maybe in the areas that we are experts in and areas that we can contribute something as well so we're looking to bring a community together we're looking to bring an industry together to to one place where where you can come you can show people what you do you can see what they do you can have open uh, honest clear discussions on a, on a blank cam- canvas and um, with no objectives and no ulterior motives simply the opportunity to, to discuss openly different topics and be educated uh, within our industry so extremely exciting times ahead and uh, we're going to be bringing you know lots of good news to our listeners really soon and we're looking to to, to, to build our community and we're going to be bringing a lot more to our to our listeners this year Excellent. So, Pete, we've uh, we've talked about a lot already, and we've over the last two episodes sort of really set the scene for our big event next week, our roundtable event. Very much looking forward to that. It's it's going to be a, a, a very very important conversation next week. Yeah, look, it's been really good. It's been really good to, to for for us to have our discussions and also to to hear the perspectives of the experts. And now we're going to have that roundtable event where people again get to to you know sit across from each other uh, online and uh, have have a, a discussion an open clear discussion and we can get to connect and relate the different perspectives and the different expertise that we have brought together here on construct constructive voices so you know very exciting stuff 
Um, and you know, I think we're doing we're doing a really good job here, and we're going to continue to do so, Steve. We're going to make sure that we uh, address all of these important topics within our industry and i think we're 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 moving on to a very exciting round table next week where we're going to try and summarize what we've done so far this month and also answer some of those questions that have have arisen and maybe put a little bit of roadmap ahead in people's minds as to where we're going with this very important subject of biodiversity Absolutely. And uh, because uh, the roundtable event is uh, on Zoom, we're going to have to do hair and makeup, Pete. So I'm going to go and get on with that. I've got a week to to sort of try and look vaguely reasonable. <laughs> oh, don't worry, Steve. You, you've got the good looks. You've got the charm. You have the voice. You've got it all, my man. <laughs> so no, look, really looking forward to it, Steve. And uh, really looking forward to, to, to what, what we can bring to, to this, this subject. And uh, looking forward to seeing you and everybody else next week. And that's all for this episode of Constructive Voices. Please take a moment to share it with others who may find it interesting. Follow or subscribe to get the latest episodes automatically on your favourite podcast app and rate and review the podcast if you can. You can also listen to the latest episode by saying, Alexa, play Constructive Voices podcast. Here's Constructive Voices. Here's the latest episode. And on our website where there's lots more information too. That's constructive-voices.com. Don't forget the dash. Until next time, thanks for listening. You're really helping us build something. Mm -hmm.